Hello, and welcome to this Solus Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solaschurch.com. As I said, the title of the message this morning is When Perception Meets Reality. And I want to start with a question. Uh, my question is, have you ever had your own perception of someone clash with the reality of who they really were. Just think about that for a second. This is, uh, I think, even more heightened in this day and age with social media, where you can get to know way too much about a person without ever meeting them. Like, way too much than you should know. Like, you shouldn't and I shouldn't know that much about people who are just, like, going to be at the grocery store tomorrow because we have the same friends. And we know way too much about them. I sound like a stalker right now, but we know way too much about them than we should. Uh, But maybe this has happened for you where you encountered someone and your perception of them was one way, maybe through social media, maybe through what you've thought, or maybe you just kind of saw a glimpse or, 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 you know, just a portion of their character. And so you kind of defined their whole from that little portion. And then you meet them and it's a whole nother thing for better or for worse, right? This can happen in a good way. Like I've had this happen where, you ever had this where like you had one view about someone and boy, were you wrong? Like, oh, they're... They're not half bad. Like, they're actually not, they're not the caricature of what I thought about them. They're a pretty decent person, likable. Um, And maybe it's happened the other way, where they were displayed to be this incredible person. And you were just like, wow, they, they are just great. And then you spend a little time with them. And you're like, oh, I'm getting to know you, okay? Now, the truth is, at the end of the day, uh, we all probably have some of that to some degree. Um, we're all both beautifully broken and made in the image of God at the same time. But for me, this happened, uh, this really came to a head. I remember as a young kid growing up, the, the, the idols of my teenage years were professional skateboarders. And my perception of them came from the different skateboarding videos that would come out. And I would I would watch these same guys over and over again, trying to emulate their style and their tricks, you know, trying to dress like them as a 13-year-old, just really wanting to be like these pros. And through the local skate park growing up of Ramp 48 that used to be in Pompano, um, I would go to the skate park, and they would have these demos where they would bring these skateboarders in. And I can't tell you how many times I was disappointed when I met these guys. I mean, my perception of them was these are like rock stars in my eyes. And then I remember like one particular skate team coming in and there was this one, I'm not gonna say who he is, but there was this one, as if like everybody here has learned in pro skate culture. <laughs> but anyway, all right, there was this one pro skater that showed, and he just showed up and he just looked like a bum. Like he was just coming in, smoke, he just smelled like cigarettes and 50 other substances. And, and he didn't even skate because he was so hungover, it looked like, from the night before. And there I was as like a little 12, 13-year-old, like, will you sign my skateboard? And, and, and he was nothing like I envisioned him. Now, this isn't just uh, 13-year-old me. This happened to me recently, even in the past five years. Now, growing up, Andrew, I still somewhat idolize pro skaters. And the weird part is, like, some of them are like now like my brother's friends, and it gets awkward. But anyway, okay. Um, there's, uh, there's some pastors and teachers that I now have really grown to admire. Like, it's, God's done a great work in my life. I've gone from <laughs> admiring skate bums to pastors and teachers, you know. Um, so I got to meet one of them uh, a few years ago. And this was a pastor, a leader, a teacher, an author that I would say is, like, in my top three guys that I'm learning from, I'm growing in. I, I'm just, I could, like, re- regurgitate most of their podcasts, their teachings, and 
And I got to meet this guy, and again, I had this perception of when I was going to meet him. It's weird, you know, because when you're, like, listening to their podcasts, it's like you have a friendship with them, but they don't know you. And it's kind of awkward. And so my perception was that I was going to go up, and I was going to introduce myself, and they were going to, like, know me and be like, can I mentor you, young man of the Lord? I am here. Andrew, thank you that you've been listening. Tell me all about your life. And it was not that at all. I, it was, it's almost been hard for me to read the books and listen to the podcast because of how much of an introvert this guy was. And he was just like, yeah, nice to meet you, you know. Just like, okay, see you later. All right, love you. Um, <laughs> perception colliding with reality, colliding with reality of who people really are. Well, um, all that to say, that's what's going to happen. That is what's happening here in the Gospel of John. And that's what's specifically happening here in John chapter 4, John chapter 5 and 6. We see in these specific chapters, we see the perception that people have of Jesus clashing with the reality of who he is. Just colliding. Who Jesus is, is clashing with who they perceive or maybe say desire Jesus to be. They have their own ideas of who, or he, who he is or who he should be, and it's clashing with who he really is. Now, the only difference between my illustrations and Jesus is when you discover, by the way, if any time our perceptions of Jesus clash with the reality of who he is, it's always going to be a good thing. Amen? It's never like, oh, he's not as awesome as I thought he was, like the skate bums. Right? Or he's more interviewed and less concerned with me than the pastor teacher guy that Andrew admires. To discover who Jesus is is always going to encourage you, even if it hurts you a little bit because it's not who you want him to be. Um, but let me say this this is so important for us as followers of Jesus. Maybe, maybe the most important thing, the most important thing is seeing Jesus correctly. The most important thing, seeing Jesus correctly. This has major implications of how we see him. I, I, would, I would argue that, that this could be the main thing um, that's affecting every other area of your life. Like how you view your life, your problems, how we worship, our faith, our evangelism. Everything about our Christian life is directly connected to who Jesus is and how we see him. And if we're seeing him clearly... And a major component to do that, because it's so important, because of our spiritual formation, you know, um, I mean, I think that's another big point, spiritual formation, which is like who we're becoming. Every day we're becoming more and more of someone, becoming more and more like something. And as Christians, the ultimate goal is to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's what the Spirit's doing, making us more like Jesus. But if we have a different Jesus, we're going to begin to look a little bit more like well, that, right? And you see that today in the church. Isn't it weird today how you have, like, people who are doing things in the name of Jesus that you're like, that doesn't look like Jesus to me. I don't think Jesus would picket funerals. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't think Jesus would act that way or comment that way on Facebook. You know what I'm saying? Like, I felt that way where it's like, man, in the name of Jesus, that looks nothing like Jesus. And so I think it's fundamental for us in our spiritual formation, in our faith, in our life, in our journey of faith, it's fundamental for us to see Jesus for who he is. And listen, a fundamental part of that is confronting the various misconceptions that we have about him. If we are to see Jesus for who he is, 
We've got to be aware of the misconceptions we have, whether conscious or subconscious. Most of the time, I feel like what, what, what gets confronted in my heart and my relationship with God is these views I had of him that I didn't realize I had. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm like, oh, I don't know. Oh, I guess I do think of you that way. I don't know why. So, so it's important to confront these. Now, this was one of Paul's passions and concerns for the church at Corinth, the Corinthian church. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul writes to this church because they were caught up in a faulty view of Jesus. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, 2 through 4. He says, For I am jealous with you with, uh, for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, Jesus, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So Paul took his ministry very seriously. He took the responsibility of those entrusted to him as the, the very bride of Christ that he was to present to Christ. His passion for the church was to be pure in Christ. And he said, but I fear, here's his concern though, lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. Paul says, here's my fear for the church, that you're going to be deceived. That you're going to be tricked into thinking something about Jesus that's not true. He goes on to say this. Here's his concern. For if, if he who comes preaches, notice this phrase, another Jesus. You see that? Another Jesus. Whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit whom, we, whom you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted. He goes, you might even put up with it. You're fine with it. You've got all these different Jesuses that are different than the Jesus of the Bible, and you're okay with it. It's kind of like the Build-A-Bear workshop version of Jesus. You just build your own Jesus. He agrees with you politically in every area. He loves the people you love. He hates the people you hate. He approves of the certain behaviors you approve of. And he rejects the other things that you really call sin. Isn't this interesting how we do this? We create these other Jesuses. And Paul says if we're doing that, we're being deceived. Now, I don't know about you. I don't want to be deceived. I want to know Jesus for who he is. And that's, again, what you have going on here in John. You have the Pharisees, even the disciples, you have even the, the people of Galilee and Jerusalem. They're all coming to Jesus, but their view of Jesus is another Jesus than who he really is. And so for the time remaining, let's confront some of these. All right, you with me? Let's just be open and honest with God. And let's ask God to really open our hearts maybe to the other versions of Jesus that we have been projecting that aren't really him. So I got a few of them. The first one we see here at the end of John. These are five other Jesuses that we need to confront in our lives in order to see him for who he is. You guys with me? Cool, cool, cool. All right. The first one, you can write this one down, is conditional Jesus. Conditional Jesus. And we see this misconception of Jesus here in the end of John 4. Remember the last time we were in John 4, Jesus goes to Galilee, leaves Judea. There's all sort of a religious ruckus being caused, and he's like, see you later, drama. I don't need none of this in my life. So I'm going to Galilee. But how does he go to Galilee? Where does he go through? Samaria. Okay, that was the title of the message last week. It's okay. I believe, I believe in your heart you were paying attention. Um, he needed to go through Samaria. He gets to Galilee. And now it tells us this uh, there in, what is it, verse 46. It says, so Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee. Remember that place where he, it tells us, made the water wine. Jesus made some epic water wine at this wedding. It's a new kind of wine. It's called water wine. He turned water to wine at this wedding. 
uh, at Cana, his first miracle. It says, so Jesus comes back to that place where he's done the miracles. It says, and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. Capernaum is also in Galilee. It's about 20 miles away from Cana, 20 to 30 miles away. You got a nobleman. This is a high official. It says, when he heard that Jesus came out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him at Cana and he implored Jesus, him, to come down and heal his son, for his son was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. It's like the guy didn't even hear what Jesus said. He's like, my son, I mean, right? Wouldn't you too if your child's at the point of death? Jesus said to him, I love this. Jesus is like, I don't even need to go to Capernaum to heal your son. He says, go your way. Your son lives. That is pretty cool. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went his way. That's a simple verse that actually displays a lot of faith that this man had. Imagine your son being at the point of death. You journey 20 to 30 miles away. You find Jesus. You're like, he's going to die. Come save him. Jesus is like, no, he's good. You're like, no, I just saw him. He's at the point of death. No, he's good. Imagine the faith to go, okay, now I'm going to make the 20 to 30 mile journey back, hoping, believing that Jesus' word was true. So this man, he's actually a man of great faith. He went his way, verse 51. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. Of course he does. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, or 1 p.m., the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same time and in the same hour in which Jesus said, your son lived. Jesus just so happened to say that around 1 p.m. And he himself believed, ready? He himself now believed and his whole household. This again is the second sign that Jesus did when he came out of Judea into Galilee. Now, this is an incredible miracle that Jesus performs, but what I want to point out is how uncharacteristic it seems for Jesus. Uh, remember, John's a little different when it's talking about Jesus and his miracles. You read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and a lot of times the focus is on Jesus' compassion, right? So you, you could read the same story in Matthew, and it's like Jesus' heart just breaks for the child, or the man with a withered hand, that Jesus had just compassion on him. And, and, and it just gives us this great picture of his, of his heart. He does what he does out of love and compassion. I don't see any of that in this story. It's like this, John chapter 4 presents harsh Jesus to us. Like, ouch, Jesus. It's like, Jesus, do you know this guy's son's about to die? And you're like, you guys always want a sign, you know. It's like, his son's going to die, Jesus. Like, it, it's interesting. Now, um, there, there, there had to be, of course, in the, the heart of Jesus, uh, a compassion for this man. But what we see happening in this story, and it's not so much this man particularly who has faith, but this man comes to Jesus, and he's coming because Jesus has a reputation in this region of doing signs and wonders. Okay, just like today, people who claim, I'll say, to have the power to do signs and wonders draw crowds from all over the world. You could today go to healing crusades and signs and wonder festivals and, and you give them all your money is pretty much what you do. And hopefully, you know, they fix your problem. That's big today, these kind of healing crusades. And back then it was like, this guy, Jesus, did you hear about that wedding last week? Yeah, the wine ran out and it was popping again, though, because Jesus was there and he performed that miracle. So there's like this, well, I got to go to him for the miracle. And what surfaces in Jesus's heart, as this man is just simply asking him to heal his son, is this thing that Jesus observes about Israel. 
he says, it might not have been this man in particular, but just the nation as a whole, just the people as a whole. He goes, unless you people, isn't that interesting? It's like, what do you mean you people? You know what I mean? <laughs> what people? His people, the Jews. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you won't believe. He kind of diagnoses the nature of the Jewish people as being a people whose faith, listen closely, is conditional upon certain things that God has to do. And even this man in the nation at this time, just as they do with God, they had a conditional view of Jesus. What does it mean to have the misconception in this way? What, what kind of other Jesus is conditional Jesus? Uh, listen closely. This Jesus that we can tend to have in our minds is a Jesus who's worthy of trusting if he does the thing I want him to. Conditional. He's worthy of trusting if, unless I see the sign and wonder, I won't believe. Unless Jesus answers this prayer request in this way. Unless Jesus comes through the way I'm expecting him to, I don't have faith in him until he does. But when he does, I'll trust him. And here's what Jesus knows. That's not true. Come on, we know this, right? How many times has God come through with you the way you were expecting him to? You never thought he would, but did that give you necessarily supernatural faith for the next trial? Now, can it encourage your faith? Sure. But Jesus knows something about the Jewish people. The Jewish people have a long history of seeking signs and wonders from God in order to be the basis of their faith. I won't believe God unless you do the miraculous. And Jesus goes, that's the source of your faith. And here's something that you know from the history of Israel. Ready? Signs and wonders are not enough. They're, they've never been enough. Jesus, if you would just do this thing, then I would really trust you, Lord. No, you won't. Signs and wonders are never... Today, in the world of the church today, people are chasing signs and wonders as a source for faith. You look at Israel. Some of the most amazing signs and wonders that any people could ever experience, God delivering Israel from Egypt. You know, back then he wasn't turning water to wine, he was more into turning it to blood, and so that's one of the things that happened. It was like judgment. You have the plagues, you have the sea parting, you, and you would think, okay, if signs and wonders were, were enough, Israel would have been an example, right? And what happened? After all the signs, after God coming through the way we want, what happened? Well, they decided to worship a golden calf. Isn't that interesting? It didn't provoke their worship of the Lord. Because here's why, okay? When your faith is condition, faith in Jesus is conditional upon signs and wonders, your faith isn't in Jesus. It's in the thing you want him to do. It's in the outcome that you're expecting. And the root issue of your heart and your life is not your circumstances, it's your idolatry. And so for, for, for the Israelites... Maybe they idolized the signs and wonders, and now that those signs and wonders are gone and it's back to normal, well, I'll just worship something else now. Back to this, back to that. And this is a conditional view. Some of us, we still do this with the Lord. We're like, Lord, you got to do it this way. you got to fix this problem. And can I just say, it's not enough. It's not enough. The only thing, listen very closely, the only thing in your life that is sufficient to support the weight of your trust is Jesus, the person. 
It's God himself. Do you understand this? If it's the things that he has to do, your faith will come and go with the wind, right? In fact, I have a lot of friends that have been caught up in these signs and wonders movements. It's got to be another. And what I found is their faith, when the signs and wonders are pumping, business is booming. But what about in suffering? Faith goes out the door. Or we have, to, we have to create these like man-made theologies as to why it's not happening. Well, I just don't have enough faith. So I don't. And you, get, you, you end up in really messed up territory. But let's personalize this. Let's, let's ask ourselves this question. Where in my life have, have I had a conditional view of Jesus? Is my faith in what I want God to do for me? Or is it in something that can actually sustain my faith? His very character. Who he is. This doesn't mean don't believe God for the impossible right? It's not that we don't believe that God can. Here's a great example of this. I think here's a great, like, uh, if we could thread this needle here. I think it's uh, these, these guys in the Old Testament, Shadrach, Meshach, and thanks to VeggieTales, Benny, right? <laughs> Sorry, church kid. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? These three guys that were unwilling to bow down to an earthly idol. They were worshipers of God. And so for their law-breaking, they were um, ex- they, were, they were sentenced to be burned alive in a fiery furnace. And here's their response. In Daniel, I believe it's chapter 6. In Daniel chapter 6, when they are, conf- when they are uh, confronted with this, actually it's chapter 3, excuse me, Daniel chapter 3. When they are told this, what they say is this. They say, well, our God is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. Our God is, is God able to do signs and wonders? Yeah, if he wants to, he can do it. God's not bound by the laws of, of, of the universe that he created. If God, God is able, even in the fire, to deliver us. But, but they say this, this is beautiful. They go, but even if he doesn't, he's still God. Even if he doesn't. I tr- here's good faith. I trust that God is able, but ultimately I trust that he is faithful, even when he doesn't. That's faith. That's faith. Not conditional Jesus. Amen. All right, look at the second one. Write this one down. How about compliant Jesus? Turn another direction here. We move from conditional Jesus. And here in chapter 5, we have this perception of Jesus as being compliant Jesus. Here's this other Jesus, another other Jesus here in chapter 5. All right, check this clash and collision out. It says, after this. After this healing in Galilee, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. It doesn't say which feast, Pentecost, Passover, Purim. We don't know exactly which one. If it's Passover, we actually have four Passovers in the life of Jesus, which marks his ministry at three and a half years. For all you Bible nerds. Okay, verse 2. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Hebrew uh, is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. This site has been excavated. You can visit this place, and just as John said, there are five porches. Okay, Bible's very trustworthy. Verse 3. In these lay, notice this, at this pool there lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of water. They're laying around this pool waiting for a moving of water. What, like a wave pool? What's going on here? Look at verse 4. This is not the rapids. Look at verse 4. Look, it says, For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of water, they were made well and whatever, of whatever disease he had. So now, is this uh, like a myth? I don't know. John's including it. Can God heal 
people this way. Like, yeah, God can heal people however he wants. Like, in Acts, people are being healed by the shadow of Peter. That's awesome. It's like Peter Pan's shadow getting healed. That's epic. Uh, his handkerchief. Remember Old Testament, uh, God, um, uh, Gehazi, Elijah's servant, gets healed by bapti- being baptized in the, in the Jordan, I believe, right? So God can do, so here's what happened, what seems to have happened. There was this way that God healed in the past, and this is another thing you see today. Like, God did it that way, so now we got to really seek God to do it that way again. It's like creating a formula around God, which doesn't really work, right? And so you have, like, I remember hearing it described, too, like, where, where God, uh, you know, God healed a blind man with mud. Does that mean we should throw mud at blind people? No, you should not do that, right? Like, this is going to work. It's like, well, no, you might have just got dirt in their eye. Like, you know, so we got to be careful of, of that. But regardless, people, listen, when, when you have no hope, you'll do anything. Right? When you've been living with the same condition, so you have multitudes of people that are just laying here, and they, whether they've seen it or they heard about it, apparently it's been said that an angel comes, stirs up the water, and whoever gets in first... Right, whoever first one there, which is like really messed up for the lame and paralyzed people. It's like, ah, missed it. All right, you know what I mean? It's like the guy with the bad eye always wins. You know. <laughs> anyway, all right, that's not that funny. Sorry about that. Okay, it's bad because it is funny, I guess. Okay, anyway, verse four. But it tells us this. Verse five says that there was a certain man there. Here's a great example of this. Verse five, who had an infirmity thirty-eight years. Thirty-eight years he had a condition, and when Jesus saw him lying there. He knew that he had already been in that condition a long time. And he said to him, look at this question, do you want to be made well? Sometimes Jesus asks us that question when we've been struggling with the same thing for so long. Do you want your marriage to be made well? Do you want your life to be made well? Oh, you've been been stuck in this pattern? Do you even want to get better anymore? Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, look at this. I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me, right? The guy with the eye problem always steps in. Now, um, I love the way David Gusick, listen to this. David Gusick describes this man in such a, a beautiful way. He says this, that this man was an interesting case of hope combined with hopelessness. He had hope or else he wouldn't have ever come down to the pool of Bethesda. Yet once there, he had little hope to be the favored one to win the healing that day. You ever, you ever been there, by the way? It's like, God, I'm hopeful and hopeless at the same time. Maybe you feel that way. You're like, I'm still stuck in the same patterns and I have no hope of healing, but I'm at church. There's a part of you that believes there's hope, and there's most of you that is living in hopelessness. And how, how can that change? You ready? When you invite Jesus to be your healer. And notice what happens. He asks this man, do you want to be made well? The, the guy goes, well, Jesus, you can't help me because X, Y, Z. That's usually what we do. Because I, I can't get in there first. So we tend to make the excuses. Hey, here's what's wrong with me. Jesus goes, do you want to be made well? And we go, well, here's the reasons why I can't. And by the way, those are, those are never reasons to Jesus, right? Lord, I, I've been struggling with this with, for this long. Here's my reasons why. And he goes, okay, anyway, rise up, take up your bed, and walk. Isn't that awesome? So check this out. Immediately the man was made well, and he took up his bed and walked. Only Jesus could take someone um, who the bed that used to carry him, he's now carrying. 
That's what Jesus does with us too. Did you know that? Do you know that's what he wants to do with you? That thing right now that you have no control over, Jesus wants you to be able to hold that thing up and declare his same victory in your life. He can bring that in your life. He does it to this man. Now, this is something that we should all be rejoicing in, but unfortunately for Jesus, there's some religious people, only back then, right? Not today. And it says, unfortunately, this was the Sabbath. He did it on the Sabbath day. Everybody say, ooh. Yeah. The Jews, therefore, said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Man who has been sick for 38 years and just got healed miraculously. Bunch of losers. Verse 11. And they said to him, sorry, he answered him, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. So it's like Jesus' word versus theirs. Like, who does this guy obey? He's like, listen, Jesus told me to, all right? Sorry, religious people, you're mad. I'm just doing what Jesus told me to do. Then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed, he didn't know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn. Jesus is just so awesome and epic and stealth and, and like Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible, gets out of there, all right? And a multitude was in that place. So Jesus was able to just like, and get out of there. Verse 14, afterwards, this is so cool, Jesus found him in the temple and he said to them, see, you have been made well. So Jesus declares who he is to this man. Sin no more, lest a worst thing come upon you. A worse thing, rather. Sin can produce horrible repercussions in even our physical life. Verse 15, the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. So I don't know if this guy's like being a tattletale or not, but he tells them. He's like, oh, I found out it was Jesus. He, he healed me. Verse 16, look at this. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Now, this is, begins the, the triggering of the religious leaders, and they are now set on Jesus' in, uh, uh, crucifixion and execution. Rather, not crucifixion yet, but execution. They want to kill Jesus now. This is the thing that did it, okay? Uh, so Satan probably moving in their hearts. At the same time, God being sovereign over it. It's, you know, they wanted to kill Jesus, but at the end of the day, it's going to be Jesus giving his life for everyone. Isn't that awesome? That's just so cool how God does that. And the reason why they wanted to kill him is because he had done these things, these horrible things that he did on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now and I have been working. We're always busy at work. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because not only did he break the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his father. Me and my father are always working, he says. And now they're like, we already wanted to kill you. Now we want to super duper kill you, double kill you. Because you said that God's your father and you made yourself equal with God. And so anytime, next time you encounter someone and they say to you, nowhere in the Bible does Jesus make himself equal with God. Okay? You could just say, well, have you read John chapter 5? Right? Like it's, by the way, it's why they killed him. Okay? Like, remember that whole thing? Jesus died on the cross? Like why did that happen? You know? Because he made himself equal with God. Jesus was God in the flesh. And so here we have the, the spark of the controversy that will surround um, the enemies of Jesus and, and in their, their, their goal being put, you know, putting Jesus on their hit list. And it arises out of one specific thing. Ready? They had a compliant view of Jesus. Compliant Jesus, here's compliant Jesus, is a Jesus who I expect to follow my own personal moral code. My own personal moral code. Okay. Um, 
There is nowhere in the Torah that says a man cannot pick up his bed that he was miraculously healed from and carry it on the Sabbath. Jesus will go on to further illuminate our understanding of the Sabbath as not something we were made for, like to serve. Oh, the law master of the Sabbath. I can't sneeze on the Sabbath. I can't sweat on the Sabbath. Right? That's what the Pharisees would do. They would make the Sabbath day a day of rest, this legalistic like master, to where there's like crazy examples like you couldn't carry a needle in your cloak because you were working with the weight of the needle. Like, oh, I forgot to take the needle out of the thing I just sewed. Oh, you lawbreaker, okay? Another one is this. Uh, if you had a wooden leg, you weren't allowed to screw, screw it in or unscrew your wooden leg on the Sabbath. You got to hop around on the Sabbath because your wooden leg is violating. You're working. You're, you know, screwdriver, righty-tighty with your, with your wood leg. Okay. And so that's what the, the religious people do. That's what they still do today. They take their own interpretation and exasperation of God's law. God does have a law. God does have a standard of holiness. Right? We even see Jesus here. What does he tell the man? Go sin no more. And they take the laws of God and they make them these rules, these regulations, these conditions that God never intended. We do, it's crazy how much this happens today in the church. We expect Jesus to be compliant to what we think is right and what we think is wrong. And it, and it goes both ways. Like in this room, a lot of you are going like, amen, man, those legalists telling me I can't drink. Telling me I can't do what I want. I, I'm a liberal Jesus person, you know, and Jesus is definitely my, my view and, and I'm free in Christ. And, there's, and then you, you can... Forget the whole part where he says, go sin no more. And so what I found is today what we end up having, having is we end up having a, a legalistic view of Jesus that's not real, or we have like a lax view of Jesus. So we make him care about rules that he never created, or we make him disregard the effects of sin in our life. And, and Jesus cares about both. In fact, Isaiah prophesied this, and he, he, he calls uh, into concern anybody who thinks this way. Isaiah 5.20, woe to those who call evil good, who call sin good, and good evil. You see it both there? This is kind of the lax view, who put darkness for light, whatever, and they put light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. I found that more often than not, Jesus is way less legalistic than I am. Because I, I, I got my legal list. You know what I'm saying? I got my legal list of all the things that I got to do to make God happy, all the ways I got to perform. It's not who Jesus is. And what we see in this passage, why does God even have laws? The, the Pharisees missed it. It's for people, for you. It's for your good. Or I have way too lax of a view of God. I'm just kind of like, you know, Jesus died for my sin. He just kind of like, you know, freedom in Christ. And, and we see here, um, not a compliant Jesus, not a Jesus who follows our own moral code. But can I tell you what it means to be followers of Jesus? It means you give up your own moral compass and you embrace Jesus's. You stop doing what's right in your own eyes because the Lord weighs the hearts is what Proverbs says. And you say, Jesus, I don't care what it's going to cost me. Most of the time, the reason why we'd rather have our own moral code is because other people approve of us more so, right? I don't want to be seen as legalistic. I don't want to be all these things. 
But listen, are we living to please man or God? What are we doing? Are, are we after Jesus or are we not? And so this is a good Jesus for us to confront. Let's move to the next one, okay? Constricted Jesus. Let's look at constricted Jesus. So far we got this. We have conditional Jesus. A Jesus who is worthy of my faith as long as he does the thing I want him to. Which contrasts the fact that he is worthy of, and him and him alone as a person is worthy of my faith, not what he does. And then you have compliant Jesus, who is the Jesus that follows my own personal moral code. He conforms to my ideas rather than me to his. And then here in, um, let's skip to John 6, we have a, a constricted view of Jesus. Jesus being constricted. Um, and this is, you can write this down, this is a Jesus, constricted Jesus is a Jesus whose power is limited by human limits. A Jesus whose power, or you could say is hindered by human limits. His power is limited, constricted by whatever limits us. And we see this in John 6. After these things, after Jesus, by the way, you just see a bunch of red letters in your Bible there for like over 20 verses, and Jesus is just like, it's the, it's the Comedy Central roast of the Pharisees. Jesus is just laying into the Pharisees, declaring who he really is, and not in a comedic way, but in a sincere way. He's proclaiming who he is. Verse chapter 6 says, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is that Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude follow him. Why? Because they saw the signs that he did. Of course they did, okay? Which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now, the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near, which meant that there were millions, literally, of Jews in Jerusalem. So when it says that a multitude came, this is probably like a multi-multi-multitude, okay? This is a very multitude, all right? You know what I'm saying? All right, this is a big group of people, all right? It says, so, they, so Jesus lifts up his eyes, he went up on the mountain, Verse 5, and he saw the great multitude coming toward him, and he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? we got to feed these people, okay? They're out somewhat in the wilderness. How, how are we going to feed these people? But this he said to them, for he knew himself what he would do. I love that. Jesus is like, I'm not concerned, but I want to see if you know what I'm going to do. He's like, well, what are we going to do, guys? Jesus asked his disciples, what do you think we can do? You know, like, okay. Philip answered him, 200 denarii, notice this, of bread is not sufficient for them. Not enough. Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here. Little British boy is there. Little British boy. Little lad. And he had five barley loaves. This a lad. He's got five barley loaves and two fish. And this just literally means, I'm sorry, in, in, uh, this literally means like a small child. That's all this means, okay? It's, I just waste their time. Okay, and he's got some, some loaves and fish, but here's Andrew, just like Philip. But what are they among so many? In other words, still not enough. Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now, there is much grass in the place. Now, I, I feel like John included that to remind us that Jesus is the good shepherd that makes us lie down in green pastures, Right? Make everyone sit down on the grass. Here's a good shepherd about to take care of all the problems. Make them lie down, sit on the grass. So the men sat down in number about 5,000, and Jesus took the loaves. When he, given thanks, when he had given thanks, he distributed them 
to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up, filled the twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men who had seen the sign that Jesus did said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world, the one that Moses talked about. So um, Another incredible miracle, which we have documented, and actually every gospel talks about this miracle. Jesus does it another time. We see another occurrence. doesn't count the the women and children. Just supernaturally providing food when there wasn't any. Now, remember, this miracle comes on the heels of the disciples not having the ability to see Jesus' power to perform it. Right? Jesus wants to see their faith. He He wants to see what they trust Jesus to do. So they go, what are we going to do? And they're, they're, the common denominator was, we can't do anything because we don't have enough. And like we, like you too, Jesus, this is a, 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 a constricted view of Jesus. This says, Jesus, you can't do this because X, Y, and Z. You ever done that? You ever restricted and constricted Jesus to your own limits, to man's limits? And usually this is what it comes out of, this feeling of not enough, not enough. So so here's an example. God's called you to lead and pursue a Christ-centered, God-honoring marriage. And you go, I don't have enough. I don't have enough of a good example with what I grew up with. I don't have enough uh, love in my tank. I don't have enough wisdom. I don't have enough... Whatever it is that you fill in the blank with, I don't have enough. Or God says, I've called you to do this supernatural thing. I've called you to represent me at work. Supernatural. I've called you to stand up and you go, I don't have enough. I don't have enough. Now, what is it for you? What's the thing in your life that your limit is causing you to constrict Jesus' ability? You go, I I can't. Why? Because of what I don't have. But how many of us know that's never been the hope of God doing something in and through our lives, right? If, If that's the moral of the Bible story... That God's work, God helps those who help themselves. And God is there to to, to do for us what he expects us to make room for. And we have the, as if we could like somehow earn God's work in our life. Or, Or as if God is, listen, God is not looking for us to have it together to work in and through our lives. The power comes when we take what we have that's not enough. And we say, Jesus, in my hands, it's not. But you're the one that can take what doesn't seem sufficient and you can multiply it. You can do with my scarcity, you can create abundance. You could do more with this little than I ever could. Like, that's the story of the human story. Like, God takes the little we have left and he does amazing things for it. I mean, you look at the the 12 disciples. I'm sure Jesus is like, yeah, I don't have enough either, guys. Trust me, okay? Like, we're trying to change the world, you know? We're trying to, like, get this moving all the way to Boca in 2020. Like, here you guys are, and you're concerned about a little lad, all right? Like, this is the story of Jesus. Our en- Listen, our not enough becomes enough when we give it to Jesus. We say, Lord, and I, I felt that way with every season of my life. With starting this church, it was like, all right, <laughs> what do you have? Not enough. <laughs> not enough anything. Money gifts, people, like, Lord, what? it's like, well, just give it to me. Do what I've called you to do. Man, what would happen in our lives if we stopped seeing Jesus as constricted? 
What would happen in your marriage? What would happen in your personal life? What would happen in your calling if you began to take whatever's not enough and just gave it to the Lord? Say, God, here's what I have. When I hold on to it, it's not going to be enough. But when I trust you with it, when I unrestrict your power in my life, the, the impossible is able to happen. And then some. Amen? So what kind of view do you have of Jesus? I'll invite the band to come out. Um, do you have any of these misconceptions? Maybe you have, have found yourself um, relating to some of these. Maybe as you look at your own faith, maybe it's conditional today. You have a conditional view of Jesus. You see Jesus as someone who is worthy of your faith as long as he does enough to earn it. Can I just say again, that's not a sufficient source for your faith. It can't support the weight of your trust. Today, let's, re let's put our trust back in Jesus. Amen? Maybe your, your, your faith in Jesus, the person of Jesus you've been seeing, he's very compliant. He follows your own moral compass, your own moral code. And, and what you need to do today is not just recognize that Jesus' authority gives him the right to say what's right and wrong. But maybe today what you need to do is something called repent. You've got to turn away from your sin. Because Jesus calls it sin. And he loves you. And he's healed you. And just like this man, he says to you, Christian, go sin no more. Stop. Why are you wasting your life in that thing? I love you. It's never, it's by the way, when Jesus calls us out in our sin, this is the difference between, we know there's a difference between condemnation and conviction, right? Big difference? Condemnation is when you feel beat down for what you did wrong. Can I say that's never the Lord? Conviction is when God, listen, he's trying to wake you up. Convic conviction wakes you up. Condemnation beats you down. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We have the spirit of God, though, who has come into the world. He's come into our lives. The Bible says to convict us of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. So what do I need to do? I need to repent. I need to say, Lord, sorry. Thank you for, not, not so that he will love you, but because he does, right? He loves you. He loved you even when you were sinning against him and wanted nothing to do with him. You think he doesn't love you now? Of course he does. Lord, I don't want this compliant view of you that just wants you to approve of all the things that my temptations are drawn towards. And maybe there's another group of you that you need to repent for your legalism. Right now you're like, amen, those repenters need to repent. If you think that, you need to repent probably more than any of us. Because you think somehow you have it together because you're not doing that sin. But maybe you need to repent of the fact that your standing with God is based on your performance, and that's prideful. And the Lord hates that. That's ugly. I need to repent. I need to turn away from the Lord. Turn away from that and turn to the Lord. And then lastly, you have this idea of being constricted. Maybe there's been just a consistent, you're like that man at, at, the, at the pool. You've just been in the same thing. And so what you've done is you've now like the disciples did, you, you've constricted Jesus' power to the limits. And you, you need to remember today that we serve a God who's not limited by what limits us. Amen? We serve a God whose power is beyond anything we can understand. He's worth it all. So this is who Jesus is. The hope here is that we move from perception to reality. That we see Jesus for who he is and we worship him for who he is. Would you stand with me?
Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.